Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict, count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, and the above entitled action, upon our oaths, do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I've said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good used the wrong evening. Line. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight is Episode 8, State of California versus Kevin Cooper. We're joined by Jason Anderson, 36th District Attorney of San Bernardino County. Mr. Anderson has been a member of the California State Bar since 1997 and served as a Deputy District Attorney for San Bernardino County from 1998 to 2014. He entered private practice in 2014 and has been an adjunct professor of law teaching criminal procedure and trial advocacy classes at the University of Laverne College of Law. He is a 2008 recipient of the Jennifer Brooks Lawyer of the Year Award from the Western San Bernardino County Bar Association, a 2012 recipient of the Above and Beyond Award from the National Crime Survivors Organization, and a 2018 recipient of the George W. Porter Criminal Trial Attorney Award from the San Bernardino County Bar Association. We'll talk about the case against Kevin Cooper and debunk some of the claims made in his third request for clemency and his request for an innocence investigation, which are currently before California's Governor Gavin Newsom. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 989 one one seven one and good evening mr anderson and michael how are you tonight good evening lisa good evening, sir. thanks for having me i appreciate it thank you for joining us uh and taking the time to talk to us about this case 
Um, first off, though, uh, I want to say something that's very important, and I neglected to tell people at work today, and my uncle's angry at me. May the fourth be with all of you. <laughs> He's a big Star Wars fan. Um, so if you could start off, uh, Mr. Anderson, telling us a little bit more about yourself than my my bio uh, which I uh, yeah you know I appreciate that it was very kind you covered it very well uh, I've been in the criminal justice system now for going on 23 years uh, the majority of it as a prosecutor five years of it actually as a defense attorney I've been the elected DA here in San Bernardino County for the last two years uh, two and a half years uh, and uh, so I have a pretty unique perspective uh, when it comes to looking at issues in regards to um, uh, cases uh, appellate cases. I uh, also understand what it means to represent defendants charged with very serious crimes. I, I tried five murder cases as a defense attorney when I was in private practice. And so um, it gives me a pretty unique perspective than just being a career prosecutor uh, sometimes in looking at these these issues, and particularly when you're dealing with continued claims um, in cases in which people profess their innocence um, in the defenses that are given. Oftentimes it seems novel to the public to hear these things, but in reality, so many of the things that are that are built in defenses in any case are argued in most cases, uh, and it's very similar in the Kevin Cooper case. But uh, I've been fortunate to, to be in this system, particularly in San Bernardino County, for that amount of time, uh, and uh, and so I've enjoyed it. Uh, as you indicated, I've been a professor for over 18 years at the law school, uh, teaching criminal procedure and issues like that. So it gives me a pretty good perspective uh, on this. I didn't know a whole lot about the Kevin Cooper case when I when I came in as the DA, and I've, I've done my own research over the last couple of years, obviously as a result of uh, the legal machinations of Mr. Cooper and his team and, and considerations by the governor. Right. And I think it's another thing that's important for our listeners to understand is that you represent not only the people of San Bernardino County, but you represent the Ryan and Chris Hughes families. Yes. Yeah, they, and it's they your are... duty to see that they get justice well no question about it and, and they still have there are still relatives uh the hughes uh, obviously the parents of christopher hughes are still alive uh still very active in our community they're wonderful people um and they always have been and they always will be and not because of this case obviously they've experienced a horrible tragedy but they are just pillars of the community and, and always have been and um uh, you're right. I mean, the California Constitution requires there to be a voice for the victims, uh, and we continue to be that. And they're very gracious in, in understanding uh, the wranglings that have gone on in this case, uh, and they're very gracious in allowing us to argue the facts on their behalf. So you're right, Lisa. That, that is part of what I do. Correct. And if you had any doubt about Kevin Cooper's claims or his guilt, as the district attorney, you would also have a duty in that case to but in this particular instance there is no room for doubt uh, you're right about that and, or and that the case you're not just defending it to say don't to prevent saying we made a mistake that's that's correct uh and i have an ethical obligation to make sure that the right thing is done uh, not the, not just that a conviction is defended uh and i can tell you lisa i've had, had an opportunity in my career one time as a prosecutor where DNA results came back once on a case, and uh, we had to instantly dismiss it because it instantly created reasonable doubt. And that was a difficult thing to do. The victims were scratching their heads wondering what was up, but I can tell you it was one of the more rewarding experiences I've had 
as a DA uh, to know that you no longer had somebody in custody who you couldn't prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and this is not one of those cases. If, if you independently look at the record as I have, it is not one of those cases. Correct. And uh, I guess to kind of touch on um, the evidence that was presented against Kevin Cooper at, or, or rather the evidence that he left behind in connection with his his crime. Um, could you give us like a, a just a summary of that? Yes, uh, he he had actually escaped from a prison. Uh, that was located within five miles of where the Ryans resided, um, and actually was probably closer than that. Uh, just about 126 yards of their house uh, was a guest house on the property that was vacant, and that was the house that Cooper hid in uh, as he was trying to figure out how to get out of the area because he knew it was going to be discovered that he had escaped from prison. So there was significant physical evidence and even his admission at trial that he uh, was in that house. Uh, what happened was was that after he called two ex-girlfriends who were not willing to help him, um, he went over to the Ryan home uh, after they had returned home and they were asleep uh, and discovered that they were in there. And so he killed all of them except for Josh Ryan, uh, and then he took their car, um, and the car was found the next morning in a parking lot in a church in Long Beach. Uh, he eventually fled to Mexico. Uh, there was physical evidence in the house linking him to the house. Uh, there was his blood inside of the Ryan home, uh, inside of the station wagon were his hairs and also cigarette butts uh, that contained his DNA. Uh, there was uh, a hatchet uh, that was part of the murder weapon that was used uh, that was discarded on the road on the way out from the Ryans, uh, and it contained um, the blood and hair of several of the victims. Uh, and then near that, um, uh, the route leading from the house uh, to try to get to Mexico uh, was a T-shirt, a tan T-shirt that that eventually was discovered contained the blood of uh, Mr. Doug Ryan, the father, and it also had Kevin Cooper's blood on it. Uh, and the blood on the T-shirt matched his blood that was found inside of the house. Uh, and there were a number of items that he was seen with, uh, weapons that were taken out of the the hideout house, the house that was 126 yards away. Uh, from the Ryan home that were identified by people who owned the home and had previously stayed in that. Um, and so you had a number of, uh, of evidence there. There was also, I think one of the things that often is not talked about enough is the fact that Mr. Cooper took the stand in his trial and he perjured himself uh, when he indicated that he never masturbated uh, in the hideout house when in fact there was a blanket that was found in the room where he slept, actually in the closet where he slept, that, that, that contained his semen. Uh, and so um, that was, uh, that, you know, that, to me, that's that's powerful evidence because it gave the jury the ability to discard some or everything that he talked about, and they discarded all of it in, in relation to all the other uh, evidence that was found. All right. And there's also, if I understand it correctly, there was some evidence from Jessica and Doug Ryan in the lease house that prosecutors believed at the time that, Cooper went back to that house, cleaned up, and then left. Yes, there was there was um, they they che they checked the sink traps uh, in the in the in the bathroom in the room where he stayed um, uh, when after he escaped from the prison, and they found some old matted hair that looked like it had been in there a long time, and then they found some newer hair 
that had looked like it had just been deposited and it matched um, the hair matched uh, uh, visually Doug Ryan's hair and Jessica Ryan's hair. And there were also uh, plant burrs that were found uh, in the house in between the um, uh, the, uh, the the hideout house and the Ryan house. There were plant burrs that were matches to plant burrs that were on uh, Jessica's nightgown uh, that had been proved right. up. Um, after she had been killed, there were post-mortem injuries that were inflicted on her with an ice pick. Uh, one of the ice, there was an ice pick or two missing from the hideout house, and there were plant burrs on her um, uh, her little nightgown uh, that matched plant burrs mm-hmm. uh, that were found in the house. And similar burrs in the car. Yes. Yeah. So, again, we're having you know we're having more than just. There's more than just one thing that connects Kevin Cooper. There's multiple, a constellation of things that connect all these three scenes together. Uh, and what Correct. what led to Cooper's arrest? You also you also have to remember, Lisa, too, that there were there was um, there were bloody footprints uh, in the sheets in the Ryan master bedroom where most of the murders occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a bloody shoe print on a spa cover outside. Uh, of the bedroom slider, um, and that that area was closest to the hideout house. And what was significant about that is there was a particular shoe pattern uh, that was unique to pro-ked-do tennis shoes that were tennis shoes that were issued to prisoners at CIM, and there was a witness that indicated he specifically recalled giving those types of shoes to Mr. Cooper in Mr. Cooper's size. So it was between a a nine and a – it was a size nine, and, and that's what he wore. Right. So, uh, and then Mexico didn't work out for Cooper for whatever reason, and he talked his way onto a boat headed back to California. Um, what led to his arrest, and when did that occur? The arrest occurred about six or seven weeks after the murders, and what led up to the arrest is he did go down to Mexico. Uh, he talked himself onto a boat to be a boat hand. Uh, he used an alias. Um, and then there was going to be sea travel to some area, but because of the weather, they headed north towards Santa Barbara. Uh, the people whose boat he was on uh, decided to meet up with some other folks. Uh, and apparently uh, there was alleged incident uh, where he may have sexually assaulted uh, another female uh, from another boat um, and that she uh, made a report. And when she went to the police station, uh, his wanted picture was already out uh, as a result of, of, of being wanted on the Ryan murders, and she saw that and said, that's the guy um, who tried to sexually assault me. Uh, and they called the police. The police showed up, and then uh, when he saw the police, he actually jumped off the boat into the water and tried to swim away. So the, mm-hmm. so the, the, flight, is, the flight is interesting because, obviously, it, it's rarely talked about, but that's in California, that's evidence of consciousness of guilt. Uh, in terms of the flight. So you could argue, well, was he fleeing because perhaps he hadn't sexually assaulted the lady in, uh, on the boat, or was he fleeing because he knew all along that he was wanted for the committing the murders uh, uh, of the Ryans and Christopher Hughes, or was he wanted because he'd escaped from Pennsylvania for burglarizing uh, and then raping another teenager at knife point? So in any event, he was fleeing, and that evidence was indicative of his consciousness of guilt of one or of many things. Correct. And then uh, while 
the clemency petition portrays many of these issues uh, that we're about to talk about as new. Um, They're actually facts that were known to his original defense attorneys and avenues that his defense attorneys pursued uh, during pretrial and trial proceedings. And the first one I want to talk about is Diana Roper and those friggin' coveralls that were destroyed rather than being examined. Yes. Yes, so Um, so the... Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, now, I've I've read Diana Roper's original initial statement to Deputy Eckley. She wasn't sure the coveralls even belonged to Furrow. She wasn't sure how they got into her closet. And frankly, I don't think she was sure of a whole lot at that point, except that perhaps she needed some attention. Well, I think the thing that's most indicative about judging the credibility of Diana Roper is that she was never called to the witness stand by the defense. And I want to be clear, the defense never has any burden in a criminal case. As we all know, the prosecution has the proof beyond a reasonable doubt as to every element. So I don't want in any way intimate that mm-hmm. that somehow the defense had a burden there. But the defense also can call logical witnesses if they believe that there may be a basis for reasonable doubt. And certainly post-trial, they've argued about these coveralls, but they never called Diana Roper to the stand. So I think that uh, what it indicates, Lisa, is kind of what you're 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 talking about there is that it just she's just not a good witness. There's just no reliability there. Um, And and, and let me say, too, that the, 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 the characterization of these things and I heard it before I was familiar with the case was that these, quote unquote, bloody coveralls. Well, nobody knows what was on the coveralls. Right. They weren't tested. Mm -hmm. But the defense at the time did know about the fact that there was a report about them and they were given those reports uh, at an appropriate time. Correct. And they brought to the jury's attention the fact that they were taken in and destroyed without being examined because homicide did not follow up. Correct. And, and, and they very, they, and, and it's good that they did because that clearly would, would could create doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said earlier, you as a defense attorney, you're always going to part of your defense in any investigation is going to be to say that the cops blew it. They they, they were shoddy. Uh, they they messed up. They didn't follow protocol. They rushed to judgment. These are things that I argued in the defense bar all the time, and, and that was the appropriate way to go. But it's nothing new. The, the, those items were mm-hmm. litigated, and the defense knew the status of those coveralls all along. They chose to do what they wanted to do. Subsequent different arguments certainly do not equate to an innocence investigation or, or showing reasonable doubt whatsoever. Correct. And, you know, even the the description Diana Roper gave, I think they try to two different stories and mesh them together, but they don't, when you look at the facts, they don't mesh. The coveralls don't meet the description of the coveralls allegedly described by the Canyon Corral bar patrons, because that's another recurring, it's like a constant rerun. Correct. It's like we're getting a 1980s show over and over again, uh, because that was something, again, known to the defense. Canyon Corral patrons testified at trial about these three clean-cut young men who don't 
match the description of Lee Furrow or any of his compadres in 1983, which is something I had never seen before, but it was pointed out in one of your response letters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the whole thing with Mr. Furrow is, is he, that was known at one of the earliest possible stages and the defense knew about that. Um, And, you know, he had a, he had an alibi and that was confirmed. Uh, And so, you know, that plus the fact that, you know, again, the fact that Diana Roper was never called would indicate that the defense probably figured out she had so much of a motive or bias to make up stories because Furrow went mm-hmm. to a concert where, where people confirmed he was with another woman that she knew. Uh, and so, you know, you, you put all that into context, uh, along with the fact that it is inconsistent with the others uh, that may have been in the, the corral bar, as you said, Lisa. Um, and you have to remember this from, from an evidentiary standpoint and looking at it in full, full context. The lack of physical evidence of anyone else being in that home, the Ryan home, other than the murder victims and Josh Ryan, the attempted murder victim, and Kevin Cooper, mm-hmm. how could you have three people in there that don't leave a speck of physical evidence behind, and yet they're just cavalier enough to walk into a bar and, and, and sally up to the bar and get a beer with blood on their, on their clothes where they just murdered four people and tried to murder a fifth? I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, we still got to keep this in the realm of what's reasonable. That's that's not correct, and that that has always been the most difficult, and that they would pick the least house to get their weapons. Yeah, just just right after Kevin would... Cooper left, right after it, just magically right after Kevin right. Cooper left, right after. I mean, you know, his stuff is still in the house there, uh, you know, evidence of him being there, and 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 they were lucky enough to walk into that house within minutes of after him leaving on foot, supposedly. Um, and pick up the murder weapons and go over there. So, yeah, when you put it in context like that, you you, you do see the how you know, preposterous it is. Right. And um, and claiming there was a rush to judgment, I mean, he wasn't arrested for almost seven weeks, uh, and his identity, as far as forensically, was established even before he was arrested without the benefit of any blood samples or any evidence from him because A41, the drop of blood on the wall, excluded the Ryans and the serological testing of the day uh, identified the potential donor of that blood as African-American. Right. And that was all done before Cooper's blood was even taken in July of 1983. And that's another important, you know, an important part that the defense leaves out when they talk about 841. They, 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 it's never discussed. And the, the, the three things that you will never hear even discussed directly, whether it's Cooper, his defense team, opinion writers, 48 hours, any of them, as far as I've seen, is they never discuss Cooper's testimony at trial in which he perjured himself. That's a critical mm-hmm. thing. They never even talk about it. And number two is A41 is how do you plant somebody's blood when you don't have their blood? Correct. And a right. lot of the pretrial testing of A41, Cooper's own expert 
was a participant and thus oversaw the testing well, and was a quality control almost. No question about it. At, at every stage, in fact, that the, 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 the defense at the trial stage rightfully requested essentially what we call a blood split in order to do their own testing. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the appropriate thing to do, and it was abided by. What's more critical, though, Lisa, is, is throughout every stage of the post-DNA testing, there's not a, a shred of doubt that it's Kevin Cooper's blood, and it's not mixed with anyone else's blood, and there's nothing else in there to indicate that it was tampered with. And so when you have beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's Cooper's blood in a house that he claims he was never in, and then the argument is, well, it must have been planted, the question is, how was it obtained in order to be planted when the logs show that it was it was collected at 12:25 in the morning on June the 6th? Correct. As far as the authorities when know, Cooper... they were, were looking for a guy named David Troutman. They were looking for a guy named David Troutman, maybe, or they were looking for three Mexican guys, or they were looking for three white guys at the Corral Bar. These were all uh-huh. statements they were getting. And so how is it that, that you even have somebody's blood to plant in a house? It just, it, that, 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 that question cannot be answered, and it, it's sort of what turned me when I looked at this case in terms of, okay, let's go back to the basics, and it just the defense can't answer it. All they do is say, well, it, it must have been planted without any explanation Correct. of how that possibly could have been done. And the third, the third piece is the tan T-shirt. That's what they never answer either because the tan T-shirt yeah. wasn't even introduced at trial by the prosecution. It was introduced by the defense. Right. Um, there was an interesting, uh, as an, kind of, I guess an aside, there's an interesting um, theory that's got so many twists and turns that you get dizzy. Um, someone, I think Gregonis is the, the target, planted sure. the blood thinking serial serology would do it, but then for some reason, it didn't happen. And so he just went on his marriage. Because I don't understand why anybody would plant blood in a crime lab situation and not immediately test that spot and say, aha, his the defendant's blood. Um, well, and I don't understand if you're planting, why you would plant something so small that, you know, by the time of DNA testing in 2002, it was dust, which is what A41 was, a very, very small, you know, if I'm going to plant blood, I'm going to plant buckets of it. Yeah. Well, there's certainly that argument to be made if, if you carry it through to think that they would be as nefarious to plant stuff. And again, the, the claim is the Cooper's blood was planted on the tan T-shirt, too. So you've got two claims of planting mm-hmm. that would have happened at separate times that would have been removed some 15 mm-hmm. years removed from each other and then had, the, had the, that, that foresight for law enforcement to be able to do so in such a perfect way as to two separate instances of planting blood to match in such a critical Correct. area. Um, again, you know, and the reason that the, the, the tan T-shirt was introduced by the defense is that it only showed Doug Ryan's blood at the time. Subsequent mm-hmm. testing revealed it's also Kevin Cooper's blood on there, along with Doug Ryan. 
but but I can see why the defense introduced it at the original trial is that you've got a T-shirt with the victim's blood and you don't have any presence of the charged defendant's blood, that could raise reasonable doubt. I, mm-hmm. I see that. And, and that's why the prosecution at the time, the testing was limited, and that's why the prosecution chose not to introduce um, the T-shirt. Uh, and so, you know, it turned out that that the, the, that piece of evidence was, was one of the most damning, in, in my opinion, almost more damning than the A41 uh, because of the presence of the victim and the defendant on one piece of item. Correct. And then, of course, the cigarette butts um, in, that were found in the station wagon, there was one manufactured and one home rolled. Um, and those, no doubt, it's Kevin Cooper's DNA. There's no doubt about that. And then there's also no doubt about the fact that the roll right uh, prison tobacco was found in the station wagon was consistent with the roll right that was found in the house, and it was what Cooper uh, admitted uh, to smoking uh, in terms mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but, yes, it, over time, the post-DNA shows that the cigarette butts contained his DNA. Uh, and even his own expert uh, at, the post, at the first round of post-DNA said the two most relevant pieces of evidence are A41 and the cigarette butts, and even that expert tested them both and said they both contained Cooper's DNA. And again, so how do you how do you how do you plant unknown DNA on a cigarette butt? Where do you get that DNA from to plant it on a cigarette butt? And why would you choose a cigarette butt to plant evidence on? Right. Well, so. I think the the claim is that the cigarette butts that Cooper claims he smoked a lot, and that basically San Bernardino sheriffs collected cigarette butts from the lease house and then planted them in the Ryan car. But the Ryan car was found in Long Beach and searched before it was brought back to San Bernardino. Well, and it was, yeah, and and it was correct. And the timing was with the cigarette butts in the car were found at a separate time in a separate location distinct from the house. mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, and some of the some of their things are are just downright insulting, like claiming that um, when it was revealed that the T-shirt was in the San Diego evidence, San Diego County evidence at the courthouse, then of course they said, oh well, of course San Diego County deputies are going to look the other way when San Bernardino comes, wanting to do something nefarious, and that's to me that's downright insulting. But I think well, they're trying to create a situation where they can get yet another hearing and call everybody in to testify and try to make something of nothing. The, the interesting thing is twofold. That's a great point, Lisa. So, so when I started looking at this case independently, the, the, what I didn't understand about the tan T-shirt was the life of the tan T-shirt. I assumed that the tan T-shirt was introduced by the prosecution at the trial and was always maintained at the sheriff's department. I didn't realize it was introduced by the defense until I started reading the transcripts of the trial. And then I realized the reason it was in the San Diego Superior Court was that it was introduced by the defense, and so it was an exhibit by them that had to be maintained by the court until the court ordered otherwise. 
And mm-hmm. so what you then start to see is the absurdity of claiming that when his blood was found on it, to say, well, that was planted also, and there was this elaborate scheme between the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department, the Superior Court of San Diego, the staff of the Superior Court of San Diego, um, to have the wherewithal to be able to plant blood on a shirt that the prosecution never introduced, and how would they have ever anticipated that the defense or a court would order that shirt to be retested 15 years after the trial? And mm-hmm. so when I figured out the context of that, I, I pretty much at that point had, had gone, okay, we're just, this, this is, there, there's just no basis for that. I mean, I understand advocacy, but that, that is just, that, that, that is, that's beyond the pale. As you say, it's offensive to you, but from, from a, a guy who's practiced for 20 some years, that's just, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. It is. And, Unfortunately, though, the times we're in now, basically, law enforcement is damned if they do and damned if they don't, and they're all liars. And there are so many people that just believe that without yeah. any basis. And the, and, the, and the interesting thing in this case is that when you have a gentleman who has the prior criminal record, the fact that he'd escaped from 10 institutions before he got to California – uh, and the fact that he used a number of aliases, um, uh, in terms of credibility, it's interesting that that credibility is never even, you know, mm-hmm. uh, tested post-conviction. It's like if you even bring that up, you're like criticized. How dare you hold that against somebody? Well, you know, this, this is a credibility contest. And, and in areas in which you say Mr. Cooper doesn't have credibility, there's evidence to back it up. Uh, in areas in which Why? you say cops have no credibility, you don't have any evidence to back it up. You have no evidence to suggest that 841 was planted. You certainly have no evidence to come close to suggesting that somehow the tan T-shirt was modified while it was sitting in the basement of the San Diego courthouse. Um, so, but, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the, the, what you're dealing with. We, we hope, obviously, that, that reasonable minds, particularly in, in, in what we think is in the office of the governor, uh, is they, they, will, they will see through that also. Correct. Cooper's and then another thing him. that – oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, in terms of requests for clemency and innocence investigation, Cooper's had at least three innocence investigations. He had a trial, which is the ultimate innocence investigation in which the jury made a decision. He had post-DNA in 2002 in which everything was examined again, and it was actually worse in terms of the results because of the blood on the tan mm-hmm. t-shirt and the confirmation uh, of the blood on a 41 and that there was no tampering uh, of any of the evidence and the recent uh, testing by Bodie in the last two years has excluded anybody else from being at that scene other than Kevin Cooper. And so this idea of innocence investigation, you scratch your head and go, okay, we've had three significant rounds of objective fact finders looking at something and they've all determined the same thing. So at what point do you say the innocence investigations have already occurred, and unfortunately they've revealed that Mr. Cooper is anything but innocent? That's, that's right. what we're trying to do. We're, we're just trying to point out what we think is, is a very objective and reasonable approach on that to get through all the noise of this idea that, that, that everybody in law enforcement is a bunch of liars, um, you know, uh, everybody's racist, uh, and, you know, there was nothing better to do than, than, than to plant some scant evidence around a crime scene that involved the murder of, of four people and the attempted murder of a fifth. I mean, come on. 
if you put mm-hmm. it in context like that, you just look at, you know, you look at it, Lisa, and probably like you are going, what are we talking about here? Right. Exactly. And I think that's, I think that's the other problem, too, is that until they get the result they want, the process is never going to be fair. And a lot of people believe if you don't get relief, then the whole process was rigged against you. And that's not, that's not how it is. That's one of the most important things I try to stress in talking about cases is whether you get relief or not depends upon what you bring to court, what evidence supports your claims. Correct. And Correct. sometimes and, and yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't go your way. It it doesn't. And, and the interesting thing, and that's a great point, Lisa, is that, and I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to indicate the problem with the claims in Cooper's case, if you look at the entire case and the extraordinary review and due process that has been given for 35 years, it really takes away from the uh, the the efficacy of cases in which people have been wrongfully convicted. There are cases that exist where people are wrongfully convicted. It's a shame. We never want it to happen. But claims like this, I think, really um, tear away at those legitimate claims and the legitimate efforts that attorneys make in instances that really erodes away sort of the public's idea of what the system is really about, which is what you just said. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. And then another important thing, I I think they mentioned um, they wanted testing of hairs that were tested in 2004. Because they yes. did get mitochondrial DNA testing as part of the review of the tampering claims, and uh, essentially, contrary to their belief of what the mitochondrial DNA testing showed, um, it didn't show any outside outsiders in that house. Correct. Because it couldn't exclude Jessica, Peggy, and Josh. Correct. Uh, and then there were a lot of animal hairs yeah, that were also found. And I think one of the biggest things was that the allegedly pulled hairs were not pulled and the clutch yeah, hairs that, were not clutched. That's You're exactly right. Good for you to pick up on that. I thought the same thing. I, I, I When I first was aware of the case, when I saw, when I saw clutch, I thought, okay, I want to see the clutch. That obviously sounds like you'd be grabbing in a defensive manner somebody who's attacking you. That was not the case. And it was never even described mm-hmm. that way at the trial. And so for it to be characterized that way is deceitful because it was never characterized that way at the trial, and that's the record. Right, right. And from what I understand, the the carpets had a lot of hair. Uh, there was a lot of blood, and unfortunately, the victims picked up hairs. I think in some cases, in the blood, on yeah. their hands. Now oh, yeah, there absolutely. is one. There's one thing that is an odd claim being made by. Uh, Cooper's by Norman Heil, and that is that Jessica got out of the house and went outside to a corral, I believe, and then was brought back into the house. Are you aware of any forensic report or opinion that Jessica got out of the house 
based on the burrs? No. No, in fact, in terms of the, the account by the surviving victim, Josh, um, he heard the screams, got up, and it was shortly after he heard the first scream that he then identified his sister uh, was already motionless um, right in the hallway that led into her parents' bedroom. And so mm-hmm. if you're talking about the series of events that would have happened really quickly, number one, there would have been no time. There's no physical evidence to indicate that any of the victims were outside of that room or or just outside of that room. Uh, I, I would imagine that that's a way to try to explain away um, the postmortem injuries that were inflicted with the ice pick uh, and why the yeah. plant burrs would have been on her, um, on her pajamas because they would have been on uh, Cooper uh, as he had come across the field into the house, um, and then they were, they were deposited on her uh, and in the house. So there's got to be a way there's got to be a way to get him out of the house, right? I mean, you can't get him out of the hideout house where all the murder weapons are. Um, right. Uh, so you, you've got to figure out what's my best theory of getting him out of the house altogether. Well, you, you say the blood was planted, and then you say, well, um, the, the, the little girl must have gone outside or was taken outside. Uh, there's no evidence to indicate that. That was never a theory by the defense in any event at the trial. Okay. And it wouldn't have been, right? And, I mean, uh, I, you know, as a defense attorney, you know, these claims that are made currently just have little to no credibility. And the trial, the trial attorney, the defense attorney would have known, boy, if I'm trying to pitch some of this to a jury, I want them to at least buy into some of it. If I really Correct. argue all of this stuff that's currently, the jury's going to be so far off the, res, you know, the, 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 the idea that they're going to just discount anything that I say. And so, again, it goes back to the confidence of the trial attorney. He picked his battles. Um, and mm-hmm. now it just seems as if, you know, nothing's off base, right? It's just uh, kind of crazy. Yeah. It's, uh, I've heard it termed the shotgun defense and the, the spaghetti defense. Throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. Well, and the other thing, too, is, is that somebody pointed out, put it very poignantly to me that, you know, imagine, you know, somebody said, I won't, I'm not going to rest until I prove the world is flat. And then that person just continued to repeat that the world's flat and these are the reasons why that you should believe the world's flat. Well, it would never end, I guess, right? If somebody uh-huh. said, okay, well, continue on and convince us, you know, that the world's flat, I mean, the rest of us would go, well, okay, how long is this going to take? And maybe we'd put up with it because there wouldn't be as much at stake. Here you got the lives of people, the legacy of victims, uh, and the truth of what every deciding decision maker has made in 35 years on this case is that the world isn't flat and Kevin Cooper is guilty. Mm -hmm. Correct. If the world were flat, cats would have pushed everything off the edge by now. Oh gosh. (laughs) I've never heard that before, but I like it. That was that right there alone was worth, that was worth tuning in Lisa right there. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. It's a, a, I get a lot of my wisdom from memes on Facebook. Good work. So, um, <laughs> and, you know, very quickly, uh, uh, one of the other sources of um, Mr. Heil are the dissents issued by Judge McEwen, which really wasn't a dissent. She was concurring but not happy about EDPA. Uh, and then Correct. Judge Fletcher's dissent in 2009. Correct. Um, now, in in the 
real scheme of things, what impact would those dissents have in the courts if were to file another habeas claim, for example? Well, the easy answer is this, is two times zero is always going to be zero. Uh, and uh, judges are free to disagree, uh, but the way our court system works is it re- regards appellate review is the majority has the say. And here's the example I give people, and I remind them about how the dissent may be something that people think are, is interesting, but it doesn't carry the day. Supreme Court right. dissent, there were, there were dissenting opinions when, US versus, when Arizona versus Miranda was decided. There were justices that dissented and did not think that suspects in a custodial interrogation setting should be advised of the Miranda rights. But we have Miranda rights. There were, there were dissenting judges when uh, the constitutionality of same-sex marriage uh, was voted on by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and if the dissent had won out, then same-sex marriage wouldn't be legal in many states in this country. And I also remind people that there were dissenting opinions in the Obamacare decision. And so if the dissenting opinions had any weight, you wouldn't have universal health care. So, you know, to say that the dissent in a criminal case is, is going to carry the day is to ignore precedent and to ignore, you know, what we see working out throughout the courts every day. And I don't mean to be flippant, uh, but I, I, to me it's very offensive that there's reliance on dissent opinions when dissent opinions are discarded oftentimes uh, by the parties who don't agree with them. But in the legal instance, two times zero is always going to be zero. Correct. Um, and that's, It's a great explanation as well. Uh, A lot of the criminal decisions, a lot of, you know, Curtis Flowers, I think the gentleman from Mississippi, if dissents carried, then he would still be in prison. Right, exactly. And and so so there's got to be that respect for the process uh, to, to tout that, you know, Judge Fletcher talks about possibly an innocent man going to death row. He, he mischaracterizes the facts, and it doesn't matter. Even if he didn't, you, you, you were outnumbered, and, and that's the way it works, and, and he's been on the other side of that. I guarantee that those judges have written um, opinions in which others disagree with them, and in their instance, um, those judges carried the day with their reasoning and the facts and the law, and so it, it, it is meaningless. It's meaningless. And the problem is, is that, that that's just a, that's a teaser for the new generation to think, like you said earlier, Lisa, oh, well, there must be something to it. There's because nothing to it. Judge Fletcher did. I mean, he did. He relied only on what benefited Cooper, and he ignored right, contrary yeah, testimony. Agreed. I mean, you're right. You're right. Willfully, and I, don't and I would he has be con- every ability to do that. Yeah. I would be concerned with him on the panel for the uh, challenge of the dismissal of Governor Newsom's or the lethal injection challenge suit. Is that still pending? Yes. When I saw that he was on the panel, I thought, why didn't someone ask him to recuse? Because Kevin Cooper being involved. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I mean, we again. I mean, we we trust our jurists to, to you know they they take an oath and we assume they're going to follow it, right? Um, so, right. So you know, 
you know, we we will see. Um, of course, it's it's not that hard to take a dissenting opinion when you're when you're it's basically, you know, what nine against how many, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's when you know you're not even close to carrying the day. It's 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 a little bit easier to be a champion of a particular position. You're not really out anything. Yeah, and and if I recall correctly, in the 2009, actually they didn't have enough to uh, vote to hear it on bonk. Right. And that was what prompted Judge Fletcher and his uh, cohorts to author this opinion, so the dissent. Um, But that is, like I said, that's an, an interesting way to look at it. And it's not a factual, not really the factual authority that that uh, Norman Heil holds it out to be. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, is if, if Judge Fletcher had been a juror and, and he would have he would have believed some or everything that Cooper's attorney uh, would have believed, then then he may have voted differently. But the bottom line is, is he was not in that position to be a fact finder. Uh, and everybody who has been in a position to that, to be a fact finder, has decided about the guilt. And so I understand somebody perhaps disagreeing, but our process says, what do the decision makers think? And he wasn't a mm-hmm. decision maker in that particular instance because he was in the minority. Anybody in the minority in an appellate court is not a decision maker. They have an opportunity this way and to review and ultimately garner enough votes, and he didn't do it, and, and that's why it's meaningless. Right. Now, uh, the Governor Brown and Governor Newsom each ordered additional DNA testing uh, yeah. outside of California's uh, 1405, I think it is. Yes. One of the things in the press dealing with this uh, issue has been that um, they didn't develop DNA profiles from a lot of the evidence that they examined because of the time and, and degradation of the evidence. Was that, is that an accurate representation or is it well, this, this, more of a at the, in, 80, in 83, the science, the science wasn't nearly what it was, um, what we have now. Even in 2002, 2003, the science wasn't even close to what we have now. Uh, and so there's, there's not been any degraded evidence. There was just an inability to be able to get results from certain scientific evidence back in 83 that they subsequently have gotten in the rounds of testing by Bodie from what Governor Brown and Governor Newsom ordered. Okay. All right. So, and um, so they uh, – the big headline I mean, should when, be when, that when, Lee Furrow has been excluded. Yeah, they'll, yeah, yeah, they'll, they'll never say it and, and you know – the, the, the other thing you have to remember is that the, the, the protocols in terms of handling of certain things were different, like the hatchet handle, um, the mm-hmm. sheath, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, at the time of the testing, once testing was exhausted, it was thought that, well, that's the end of it. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. But, again, the, the testing that existed and the subsequent testing that has enhanced it, again, exclude anyone else from being present there other than Cooper and the victims. That's the bottom line. Okay. So. Right. And then there was a partial profile on the towel that we don't know whether it is related to the 
Ryan home or the lease home or played any part in uh, the murders. Um, it was but collected, was but it no, was never, never determined that if it never was Never associated. Well, right. Right. And there is a single male profile with no match to any reference samples. Including furrows. Including furrow and no match in CODIS. Correct. Uh, but there's also no reference samples from court personnel and 83 jurors, attorneys, uh, personnel at the courthouse. So there's a there's a potential that that male profile may be unrelated to the to the homicides right. and may just For be sure. from handling of the towel in 1983. Uh, right. Especially the officer who collected it is no longer with us and there's no Correct. reference sample from him. And I think that's another thing people don't realize and don't understand. DNA doesn't say this belongs to Lisa O'Brien. Right. She's 56 years old and she was born on this date. DNA, you have to have a reference sample from someone to compare it to that profile and see if those two profiles could be from the same person. Correct. And absent that reference sample, the DNA is going to remain unknown. Correct. So, and I don't and, and think people will, have... they, go ahead. I was going to say, you also have to keep in mind that that towel could have been deposited days or a week before the crime even occurred. That that towel may not even be um, connected or relevant in any way with the hatchet, with the shirt, with the crime scene at all. So, I mean, think about your local streets, how much litter is out there. Right. <clears throat> and going, pick it up, picking up a cup and DNA testing it. It's right. not going to get you anywhere. No. Even right. if you had a known sample on it, it, it doesn't mean it's connected to the crime scene. Right. You know? I mean, it's possible that that orange towel was used by somebody in that neighborhood and discarded out of a truck. And subsequent to that, that person ended up in CODIS. And the, and the town comes back and hits on somebody who's in CODIS and you identify a John Doe. Um, and then mm-hmm. you find out that John Doe was had nothing to do with, with the crime. He had an alibi or whatever. I mean, it's it's it, you know it's it's these rabbit holes that that you go down that 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 you're right that people hear that and they go oh that must be a glaring hole that must be reasonable doubt well there's there's a lot of things you have to establish before you can even make that orange towel even relevant regardless of what the science the science on the towel is that makes sense yes and it it falls under more of the uncorroborated assertions like. Um, you know, Cooper claims he braided his hair, and so on the night of June 4th, his hair was in braids. Well, there's no corroboration of that claim. Mm-hmm. And, so and his you hair remember. could have been the wild bush that Josh Ryan saw. Yeah. Um, and then... Uh, Cooper's not known for his credibility, though. And, and again, <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, you know, let's put it in context. I mean, the guy, the guy, said, he, the guy mm-hmm. said he never masturbated. He testified to that at trial. He goes, he never masturbated. And he certainly didn't do yeah. it 
uh, while he was in the hideout house, and his semen was found on the blanket. And so right. you don't believe him. And, and you know, he, you know he, he'd escaped from 10 other prisons. So when he tells you that he did a certain thing with his hair, um, I don't believe it. He, he also testified that right before he left the lease house, he put his prison clothes back on to walk out into the public to try to get away from the area. Uh-huh. He put his prison clothes back on. Now, he had access to other clothes in that house. Why would you put your prison clothes back on when you just escaped from prison to walk around and try to hitchhike out of the area? I don't know if that's something that you that you, you were aware of. No, I, I don't think I was aware of that. I'm just, I, I'm, and, I don't and that recall is he, reading that. That's what he said. That's what he testified to. And that's that's incredulous. And so you have to look at that when you're talking about the lens of credibility in terms of the way his hair may have looked when he was in the house. Because, remember, he would have had the benefit of knowing that Josh Ryan said he saw a puff of hair. Mm-hmm. So having the benefit of knowing that, certainly you may you may tailor your testimony to be my hair was a different way. And, and I think that's also part of the re- – and that's why some of their claims don't make sense is because they're just trying to be contrary. And they're not yeah. thinking it through to the logical – because the burrs, you don't have to put Jessica outside the house. You just say whoever came in the house brought the burrs in. Yeah. So, and I think they kind of lose track of what's what's what. They're so busy focused on a few specific things that they're they're losing the big picture. Too busy accusing they're, everybody of misconduct. Exactly, pot, meat, cattle. Yeah. Um, that's when, like I said, the, that the San Bernardino DA was the one misrepresenting facts and omitting facts. I, I yelled, my sister was like, what is wrong with you? (laughs) But I did, I, I yelled an expletive because I couldn't believe that Norman Heil actually wrote that. So... Well, and, and um, the difference is, is those claims have been litigated. Those claims were made at the trial level. The, the, every piece of evidence was challenged in terms of its admissibility or raised as a result of discovery violations. So those mm-hmm. those things were resolved at the trial level. And, and then there's been separate, not just review on appellate review, but actual testimony. Uh, Judge Huff, they called, what, 40-some witnesses to determine yeah. if, in fact, there were with all this. I mean, so we're not talking about this thing that is, is, is captured in time back in 1983 and 84 and 85, and then it's just this dead record of transcripts. There was a subsequent full-on month or two long hearing involving live witnesses, despite the physical evidence, live witnesses to determine if there was misconduct, and it was, it's always been determined that there was not. So mm-hmm. there's a record that cuts Correct. against the claims that are currently made. And, and that's what's frustrating is I, I know it can be seductive to a new audience now to think, oh, my goodness, all these claims. These are not new claims. They are not claims that have, haven't been reviewed. They've been thoroughly reviewed. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the only new thing is they, they do claim to have four new witnesses, one who claims to have seen the Ryan station wagon uh, on June 5th after it's already documented being in the church parking lot. Correct. But, um, and frankly, in 1983, 
when Michael and I talked about this back in July of 2018, 1983, station wagons were the SUVs. Right. Um, all GMC station wagons looked alike. So the Buick and the Vista Cruiser, the Mercury, the Ford, they looked alike. Um, and you were unusual if you didn't have a station wagon. Yeah. So, That's a good point. Um, <laughs> she could have seen, and, you know, I don't care if you saw five people or four people or two people. You could have seen a vehicle going about its business, um, although there is a, a very interesting claim that she wrote down the license plate that it had been published in the newspaper. I guess she didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, um, the, 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 the interesting thing about the, um, well, to go back to these four witnesses that claim these things that, that then supposedly, I don't know why you would have witnesses that could be so convincing that you, would not reveal the identity to anybody else to allow them to be examined. Um, you know, if I had convincing witnesses, I'd want everybody to know. Um, and they've never been disclosed in terms of the identity. So there's an issue there. Um, as it relates to the car, though, that it was it was really the the the. It's amazing, the 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 coincidence, the the inc- the the incident of pure having somebody not having any idea what's going on, of confirming oh, when they dear. put that flyer, you know, so put the flyer under the window of the, of the car. Michael, did we, did he drop? I oh, can hear you. Shoot. Lisa, I can hear you. Oh, no, no, no. We were getting to the Lisa. best part. Lisa, can you hear us? I can uh, hear Michael. I think Lisa Michael, can you hear me? Have some issues. I can hear you. Okay, so I'm still on. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, give me one second. Uh, she's. Uh, oh, she has the storm rolling through. Oh, okay. I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties here. Hey, can't do anything about nature. Hey, that's certainly true. Give us one second here. I'm going to tell her to uh, call back. That it's, just, it's just like the scientific evidence in the Cooper case. Can't can't refute it. Hey. Can't stop a storm from hey, one of the lost. Okay, there we go. She hung up. Uh, she should be calling back here in just a second. But you're absolutely right. I mean, a, a lot of these, it, it, it's crazy to me how a lot of these defense tactics that we go over each and every week here on the show, they all seem to mirror each other. And, you know, in a lot of cases, you're right. They not only, they not only, you know, they blatantly, they blatantly just spit in the face of that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's not a single case that I did as a defense attorney where I didn't challenge the police's investigative techniques. I didn't, I didn't challenge them on their motive, their rush to judgment, their bias against my client, um, testing on whatever science, testing. whatever science. So it's Hello? what you do. It's what you do. Yeah. Sorry about that. I, I have a storm moving through and my, my, uh, I lost my phone or my, 
computer or something. So, I can hear you now. Can you still hear us, Lisa? Yeah, I can hear you now. I just went dead for a few minutes. And uh, sorry, now I no, picked I up an echo. I, I was just telling them, you know, the more you hear about these, we talk about these every single week. And like he said, you know, it's crazy how much that these defense attorneys just spit in the face of facts. You know, they're all alike in that, that a lot of defense attorneys just, like you mentioned earlier, spaghetti theory, they just start throwing stuff at the wall and facts be damned, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and again, I, I want to I be careful in my position that, that I, I certainly don't hold anybody, uh, I don't hold it against anybody that would advocate on behalf of their client. Um, I did it. Right. Uh, defense attorneys are expected. And I, and I said, oh, what you're saying. But, but the difference is, yes, you do have theories. And so there is a way of saying it's a shotgun approach or throwing spaghetti. But there's a receiver of that spaghetti. There's a wall that says it's going to stick or it doesn't stick. And in this instance, it was the trier fact, and it's been the post-DNA testing, and it's been all the appellate courts that have operated as the wall and says, okay, in this instance, it doesn't stick. So I don't fault the attempt to get the spaghetti to stick. What I want to remind people of is there's been a process that has tested whether it will or not, and it will not. Over and over again, it Mm -hmm. does not stick in this instance, if that makes any sense. Yes, and in this particular case, Kevin Cooper has had extraordinary due process because he's had at least three hearings, uh, and in some cases he's presented new versions of old claims. Uh, And I think something lay people don't seem to understand is that it's not just Kevin Cooper going in and presenting his witnesses and then the court decides. The prosecution, the state, has its opportunity to present contrary witnesses, to test Cooper's witnesses and cross-examine them. And then the judge weighs and, and determines who's more credible and whether or not Cooper's uh, evidence met the clear and convincing standard, and it didn't. And um, so I, right before uh, I lost my phone or whatever I lost, <laughs> I was getting ready to go over some of the, the rehashed evidence. Um, of course, one of the biggest ones is Josh Ryan's initial statements while he was being treated in the hospital um, are not the be-all, end-all. He was a young child with severe head injuries. He gave an initial statement where he thought it was three individuals who had been there right before they went to the barbecue. And I think over time he realized that that wasn't what happened and when he spoke about the murders as i recall um to a therapist he actually only referred to he he never referred to they and that was what led to the theory that they were looking at a single assailant right uh and then there is the 
you have to ahead. realize about Sorry. Josh Ryan is that you, you have to realize about Josh Ryan's statement. There was a video statement that was introduced um, by the consent of the defense at the trial, but the defense was also allowed to test that credibility against what you just talked about. Mm-hmm. And so the jury understood that he may have given inconsistent statements. It wasn't as if the jury wasn't allowed to weigh what Josh Ryan initially said versus what he ultimately said. That happens in every case. The, the difference is the jury also had the scientific evidence and all of the other evidence that put Cooper in the house. So that, that, that's why, you know, I mean, so it wasn't as if this, again, this is not new. This is not a new revelation. This all existed at the time. The defense knew every bit of every statement that Josh Ryan said as it related to anything that happened in that house on that night that he may have seen. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've always admired about uh, Mr. Koch, Koch's, I'm I know I'm not pronouncing his name correctly. Coaches. Yeah, Coaches. Coaches. The original prosecutor is he did not call Josh to testify at the trial because he didn't want Josh put into a position of believing that his testimony would decide the case, that it wasn't something that Josh needed to be put through. And I've always admired that. Um, But there was a a videotaped statement where the prosecution and the defense were able to question Josh and the defense was able to thoroughly cross-examine him uh, without limitation. So, but if you read some of the defense material, you would think that these things didn't happen. Correct. Um, And then there's the controversy over the blue shirt that was seen by Laurel Epler uh, somewhere in the vicinity of the Canyon Corral Bar. The interesting thing, I don't know if you remember this, Mr. Anderson, Michael may not remember it. Does anybody remember the pictures of the dress that some people saw as white and gold and some people saw as blue and black? Oh, I think so, yeah. That is my explanation for the T-shirts because only one T-shirt was collected. Only one T-shirt was reported. Right. And I think what happened is Laurel Epler thought what she saw was blue, and that's what she reported. But when Deputy Fields responded, and as I recall, she wasn't there when he collected the T-shirt. Correct. So, um, and, and I think that that's basically what happened. She thought she saw blue. He picked up what he picked up was actually tan. It's laying out in a field somewhere. Um, That's another big controversy that has been thoroughly examined before Judge Huff. Correct. And the defense at the trial um, was aware that there may have been a discrepancy between either the tan T-shirt, no blue shirt, or two shirts. And it was a determination that they made that, you know, for whatever reason – uh, they didn't pursue. They they relied on the tan T-shirt. So again, it's mm-hmm. these are not issues of new evidence. Um, this is this was all known. 
and it's been known since 1983-1984. Yes. Uh, then, of course, we have the rehashing of the destroyed coveralls. Yes, they were never examined, and since they were never examined, uh, we can't say what was on them. Deputy Eckley did not believe it was covered in blood. Um, so, and he has testified. Correct. About the coveralls in 2004, I believe it was. Um, then there were the claims about the elevated EDTA on the tan T-shirt, which Cooper's expert, Dr. Ballard, did not find. Correct. And um, then another claim that has me scratching my head, um, they claim now, first they claim there were two blood types in BV2, which is a vial taken on July 30th, uh, 1983 from Cooper. They seem to have abandoned that because I believe Bodie found only one profile, Correct. DNA profile, and that was Kevin Cooper's. Correct. Now yeah. they're saying there were two vials and one is missing. Yeah. But I think, it, it once would... again, they're playing fast and loose with the facts because I think it's, yeah. there was a vial and there was a reference card Correct. or a swatch. Correct. The swatch was consumed by Cooper's expert, Terry Melton. Yeah. And then I, I think on the, tw- on the 48 Hours interview, Cooper's DNA attorney now says that the, they're troubled by the fact that there's very little blood left in BV2. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's been tested for 35 years and swatch was made out of it you know so i mean you know i'm I'm, i got news for you you know when you when you you take a bite out of a sandwich there's a little less of the sandwich um than before (laughs) you know i mean come on you you know so it's just it's crazy it's seductive right it's very seductive to talk about these things but you our our experiences in reality do not bear out these claims and the science Mm -hmm. that the science that he has asked for he has asked for it, has refuted his claims every time. But again, I won't, I won't rest until, the, until I prove the world is flat. So, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that's, the, that's so, what we're dealing with. Yeah. So, you're, but you're exactly right. The, the vial, I mean, it could be, you know, 35 years that blood just doesn't hold up. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's been and tested. then they, yeah, and it's it's been tested. It's been it's probably been used to prepare. Well, I don't I don't remember the swatch. I think was sent to the crime the DOJ. Yes. And then went on to Terry Melton, which she consumed. But it, I mean, if she can consume that, it's going to be consumed in other testing. And then um, I think that pretty much, you know, I think that pretty much, I don't even want to go over these roads again. <laughs> I'm tired okay. of these no, you, runs. Yeah, you've covered them. I mean, you you know, again, it's it's it, it's been covered. So the, you know, the 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 critical thing I think for your listeners that is learning about this case for the first time is that 
these um, these claims are not new. They've been thoroughly, thoroughly examined, and rightfully so. I want to be very clear, Lisa. Rightfully so, right? And mm-hmm. I say that because the science is the science, and the science continues to indicate that Kevin Cooper is guilty. And just because you say something over and over and over again doesn't make it true. Tone doesn't equal truth. In this case, the evidence and the science does. Right. And uh, there is one. Uh, there are a couple of little, um, a couple of little things. There's one. Their their allegation now is the multiple victims and the use of multiple weapons prove it could not have been a single perpetrator. Um, based on Josh's statements, I disagree. Because what he describes is a blitz attack on Doug and Peggy and then the kids. That's what breaks my heart is these children. Yeah. It's, who it, it. were brutally attacked for no reason other than that they could have identified him. Well, what what I'll say about the testimony and the order uh, of it uh, is, again, you have a lack of physical evidence that anyone else was in the house other than the victims and Kevin Cooper. So that refutes that there were multiple attackers in that instance. Mm Mm-hmm. I'll also remind people, uh, because this is a claim that's been made, is that uh, Richard Speck, Ted Bundy, and Jeffrey McDonald all killed multiple people, and uh, they did it by themselves. So it's not unprecedented to have a single person be able to kill more than one person. And as you said, mm-hmm. Lisa, you, you discount the, the kids in this. You know, when you wake up and your parents are screaming, and then you see your sister laying in the hallway or outside their bedroom not moving, I mean... There's no way to process what's going on uh, mm-hmm. in terms of that, and 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 so many of these so many of these um, injuries that were inflicted were were inflicted post mortem. I mean, it was it was a it was a it was hate, it was um, it was evil. It was the, the the scope of the injuries that were inflicted didn't even need to be inflicted. These folks were incapacitated very quickly based upon the skull fractures, and yet they suffered so many different injuries after that. I mean, this was rage. So. Right. I, I, I've long agreed with that. Time. And yeah, I mean, I've Ted wondered how he managed. Mm-hmm. One of the things when Michael and I first talked about the case, I was surprised that he didn't kill the woman that came into the lease house the second day he was there. I mean, uh, I was yeah. I was surprised that that didn't happen because I think that's who Kevin Cooper is. Well, I mean, he he could have been out in the barn. He 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 could have you know he could have been over in the you know in the Ryan house. They weren't there. Who knows? I mean, you know, there there are a number of explanations. It could have just been you know, fortunately for that lady, she was in and out. Mm-hmm. Maybe he wasn't aware, but he could have been asleep. He may not even know yeah. he was in there. So. And then the other allegation is that Cooper was an accomplished car thief and could have stolen the car without entering the house. Yeah. That one is another one that's like you're not thinking this through because <laughs> it's really not what you want to be saying when you're talking about 
a uh, murder committed to steal a car. Yeah. No, there's, you know, to say it could have happened a different way doesn't mean he's not responsible for what happened in that house. Um, You know, so um, there was no way he would have known, you know, where the keys of that car would have been, uh, what would have happened if he had started that car with family inside. Remember, this is a guy running away from a, uh, a, a rape allegation in Pennsylvania. This is a guy who just broke mm-hmm. out of a prison under a false name. Um, and so you're not, you're not, you're dealing with, uh, with, with desperation here and, and, right. and obviously as a result of the crime scene inside the house. So it's easy 38 years later to go, Oh, well, let's, let's just compartmentalize this as easy as we can. And, you know, in the minds of a very logical and reasonable thinker, you know, that wasn't mm-hmm. what was happening here. So this is a guy that, you know, it, it's, you know, conniving and, and, and desperate for his own needs. Uh, and when the two ex-girlfriends wouldn't help, you know, there was another way in which he had to figure out how to get out of Dodge. So, Right. And that was it. And, you know, just, just like um, the, as far as the burglaries and his history of burglaries, well, maybe after all the noise and uh, screaming of the murders, he thought it was a good idea not to search the house for valuables and to get away from the house as quickly as possible. Well, he 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 failed. He did not kill the witness in Pennsylvania, and ended up in prison as a result of it. And mm-hmm. so the lesson that might have been learned is this time you don't leave any witnesses. Yeah, right. But then the the killing took so much, made so much noise. Perhaps he was worried that somebody might have heard the noise. Sure, sure. Number and so of he didn't take the time to go through the house. And, and look for valuables or look for money. Although I do think he stole a coin collection of Jessica's. Perhaps, yeah. Because, um, and that's the other interesting thing is that he, you know, the things that he admits to, and yet people don't believe he's capable of this. No, I know. Yeah, that's that. That's not even worthy of discussion. There, that's you know the the the, the difference is luckily in, in the world of prosecution, motive isn't an element, and so we don't have to prove motive. Mm-hmm. It helps to explain, uh, but in this instance, it wasn't an element, and it doesn't change the science. Right. So that's another interesting thing. Um, in from a practical standpoint, how much of an impact does the lack of a conviction have on looking at a person as a perpetrator of the crime for which they've been convicted or other crimes. And in Cooper's case, he stipulated to the rape in Pennsylvania and his victim testified. So he can't really say now, well, I haven't been convicted, so you can't talk about it. Yeah. Um, and then the victim of the, incident in Santa Barbara testified. Yeah. So her allegations have been tested during the penalty phase. Um, In reality, I mean, do you have to ignore something on a person's arrest record because they haven't been tried and convicted? Well, as a prosecutor, yeah, at times it may be excluded, but it, but in this instance, the, the, the record contains this. We're, we're not making this up. These facts about Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and Santa Barbara were, 
were things that were on the record that are reviewed on appeal in this case. And so you can't just conveniently discount them. Right. So. So. And again, it, 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 uh, but, on, on, larger, on the larger scheme, what you often hear, it, particularly with, with some of the other things that I've reviewed in, in looking at this case in two years, is that Mr. Cooper has steadfastly maintained his innocence over the years. And whenever somebody says something about something else, we judge their credibility, and we have a prism with which to judge that credibility. Obviously, we're going to make as, as self-serving statements about ourselves as we possibly can. We all do that every day. We try to make ourselves look as mm-hmm. good as we can in any light. But then you look to extrinsic things that would uh, impact somebody's credibility. Escaping from prison institutions ten times um, and being involved in uh, serious and violent felonies like uh, burglaries and rape affect your credibility. They do. I'm sorry. I, I, know, I, I know his team doesn't like to hear it, and I know his team will accuse everybody of misconduct who even brings it up. But that's the reality of what we all live every day. And it applies to Cooper as much as it does anybody else. Correct. And, you know, they and they want to apply that to Sheriff Tidwell, Baird, Gregonis, Furrow. You know, they want everybody else's um, business to be front and center. But then when it comes to Kevin Cooper, you know, behind that curtain, because that's all the bad stuff. Right, and 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 that's advocacy, and I get it, but that's a distraction from the science. That's a distraction mm-hmm. from the science of the last 35 years and the people that have been in a position to review this case and be decision makers who continue to confirm that Cooper's guilty. All the personal attacks on everybody else are a distraction. That's all that they are, and it's not uncommon in the world of litigation in the criminal realm, and fortunately we have 35 years of a body of a record that stands up against that type of advocacy. Oh, wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, This has been a great conversation and a great perspective on the case. Absolutely. It's been amazing. Well, I, I want to thank you both for, for asking me to do it um, and, and for reaching out and uh, in this forum. So I really appreciate it. And, uh, and for, you know, you guys, you know, being prepared and, and, and giving me, you know, an opportunity to answer questions. And um, I just, you know, we, we appreciate it. And, and I do know that uh, I think the Hughes would appreciate it, uh, certainly. Uh, and so um, I, I hope I was able to contribute some. Thank you. Yes, you, you did a great job. And I wanted to say I noticed on your website you have uh, or your office has a podcast, Justice yes. Talks. Um, when does it air? We are we've done one of those, and uh, our our media per, our people, uh, Mike and Grace, they've been very busy with other things, and so we haven't been able to get okay. around to. Another, but what I'll do, Lisa, is now that we have your contact info, when when we mm-hmm. put another one together, uh, I will let you know. So there's no set time that airs. It really is about resource when we have cases and we have individuals in the office who have the time and ability to talk about things. Uh, then we'll put it mm-hmm. together. But you know, our, our work ebbs and flows. We're a big office with 570 people, so um, we, yeah. we we have great intentions of, of keeping that consistent, but sometimes. It takes us away, but we'll let you know when we launch the next one. 
Perfect. Thank you so much. And if there's another case or ever anything you would like to come on and talk about again, please reach out and give us a call because you're a great guest. We'd love to have you back. Thanks. Thanks a lot, guys. You guys have a nice evening. Hope the weather doesn't get too crazy for you there, Lisa. Thank you. You too. All right. I'm going to sign off. Good night, guys. Have a good one night. Man. Lisa, I'm just saying, you get killer guests. <laughs> I just, you know, I, you, it never hurts to ask. Yeah, that's true. I I Thanks, reached buddy. out for a letter, and I said, by the way, if he ever wants to talk about all these recycled claims, give me a call. Right. Uh, he was he he is a great, and it's I know it's difficult to get district attorney sometimes because something they say can potentially be turned into new evidence mm-hmm. or a new claim. And so sometimes it's there's like a fine line. But he was great, and I have to say he did not limit what we could talk about. Right, absolutely. He was very open. And as as you saw, everything I brought up, I mean, there are things on the outline that I decided, you know, we've talked about them, we've touched on them. We're not going to, we're not going to rerun. So right, exactly. um, I censored, but he didn't censor anything. Absolutely. I really Absolutely. Like he was very transparent. <laughs> so, but yeah, so this is, this is a good, um, this is a good interview and, and it's nice to have, uh, his perspective on the Absolutely. process and the proceedings with Kevin Cooper's case. Absolutely. And not only is it a good interview tonight, but it actually sets up tomorrow night for another great interview. Yes, it does. Look at that transition. It, I know. Good <laughs> job. So we, luckily, we are going to finish a little on the early side tonight. Um, I have more weather coming and just thought that discretion is the better part of valor. Yeah. Um, And I also, I've like, that's never happened to us where just your, your audio went out. That was like, we heard you just fine. We heard you just fine. You just couldn't Uh hear us. No. It was just static. Right. That's crazy. And I'm, but I'm glad that Mr. Anderson's part was not affected. That was because yeah, I thought, oh, he's that was good, and and he, you know, he was he was in a good. And right, I thought, right. oh God, if Blog Talk has dropped, I'm I'm gonna scream. Yeah, <laughs> so no. I was relieved we, it we was just me. We were like, Lisa, we can yeah. hear you. We can hear you. And then we finally figured yeah. out that you couldn't hear us. So and, that's where we, we and, figured it out about the same time you did. And I can't put, you know, like the blog talk or the live video on. Right. Right. So, because then um, we'll get feedback. Yeah. And I can't even have it open. So. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, let's end on a high note. That was really good. 
I am yep, really happy with that. Crappy for you. you need to get in there and charge <laughs> your phone just in case. Yeah, um, I know. Well, I don't know if the power is going to go out, but it's just the the wind and the lightning. Right, absolutely. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us tomorrow evening, May 5th, 2021, at 8 o'clock p.m. for a bonus episode of Clear and Convincing. In Episode 9, we interviewed New York Times bestselling author Caitlin Rother, about her recently released book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansions Case. Ms. Rother's book, released on April 27, 2021, strives to correct rumors, misinformation, and conflation of speculative details to uncover the truth about the events leading to the deaths of Rebecca Zahau and Max Shacknai, which are inextricably linked. We'll be back on our regular Schedule on Tuesday, May 12, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 10, State of Texas versus Lester Bauer. Bauer was convicted of the October 8, 1983 murders of Bob Tate, Ronald Mays, Philip Good, and Jerry Mack Brown in an ultralight airplane hangar in Texas. Parts of that plane were later found in Bauer's garage. Bauer's 2015 execution was controversial, and we'll talk about the murders, Bowers' arrest, trial, and conviction, and the issues raised during post-conviction litigation, including his claim of actual innocence made in 2008. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.